priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that, any, that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And insomuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much wealth in your word. We just It's so hard for us to express it to one another and to express it to you. But we are thankful that you've given us your holy word 
upon which you build so many wonderful things in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, as we study these things, that we gaze into your word, Lord, and we desire to, to learn it and to apply it to our lives. Would, would you just help us to, to interact with you and commune with you in the special way that we get to when we study your word, especially as a family? So we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us and help us to understand these passages and how they apply to our life. We thank you that we have the privilege of studying together, and we do so in total unity by your Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are in, a, in the middle of a very deep four-chapter section of the book here, which focuses on Jesus' present ministry as our high priest. The Gospels articulate his earthly ministry, his public ministry related to his uh, redemptive work that he did, which culminated on the cross when he said to Telestai, when he said, for it is finished. But his ministry didn't end, as we know. His ministry continues today. And his present ministry is a ministry of being a high priest. And so as we've seen all through this book, the writer, inspired by the Spirit, has masterfully expounded upon why Jesus is better in every way and why it was foolish for these Jewish believers to, to contemplate going back to Judaism because of persecution. And so he's now getting to this uh, great truth of Jesus being our high priest. And he's touched on it before, but he's really going to get into it in depth now here in chapter 7. And we're going to see from chapter 7, 8, 9, and into 10... He really gets into all these things in a very significant, deep way. And I believe that he does so because so much of their identity was, was uh, based in this whole sacrificial system that was going on at that time. So their whole identity was based on the high priest and, and the sanctuary, the, the temple at this time was going full steam ahead. And so much of what they respected about Judaism was, was so much centered around that high priest. And so it, it's not surprising to us that he would spend so much time talking about all these things that pertain to uh, the high priest and how Jesus is a better high priest. So we're going to see some real deep things. Are you ready to dig deep? You know, this is the kind of stuff where there's churches that'll go their whole existence. It'll never, ever cover these chapters. Uh, it, it just... They just won't for many reasons. And as I said, this is a big boy book. Uh, you know, it, it takes some real thinking and real, you know, paying attention and, and looking at details and so forth. Uh, but there's so much wealth here, as in any part of the scriptures. But when you look at the depth of what he's getting at, it is so profound. It's, it's obviously worth it, of course, because we're told elsewhere that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So every verse, every jot, every tittle is important. So if you have trouble with these sections, these next few chapters, I'm right there with you. Um, I can barely read them, just see nothing of understanding them. Uh, but God, God will be gracious and he'll help us as we make our way through. Now, this morning, he's going to really focus in on Melchizedek. And I told you before when we looked at him a little bit in chapter 4, but mainly in chapter 5, that, he would, that by this time in this part of the book, he's going to really zero in and get really deep. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at um, the, the, this person, this, this priest and king named Melchizedek, and how he relates to Jesus being our high priest. So hold your place here in Hebrews 7 and turn over to Genesis chapter 14. It should be easy to find because it's the first book of the Bible. Um, 
and we're going to look at for ourselves. It's important for us to see this account. There's only two places in Scripture besides this passage that we're looking at in Hebrews uh, where he talks about Melchizedek. And so we need to see it for ourselves. This would be the reference point for these Jews because of their background and their history. And so we want to take a, a good look at the account in Genesis where we see this this priest slash king. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 14. Let's begin reading in verse 8. We're told by the Spirit, And the, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, and the king of Zobiam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, thanks for clarifying, <laughs> uh, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidon against Cheridamalar, I guess that's how you say it. I'll just say this guy from, that'll be easier. King of Elam, title, king of nations, Amphrophel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Alasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedum was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They, took, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebith trees in Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram, as we know, was very wealthy. He had probably a thousand, I mean, multiple, multiple, multiple trained servants that knew what they were doing. And he was going to take care of this. And he, he pursued them all the way to Dan. And Dan is in the very extreme north in Israel. You can go there today and you can see a lot of these. In fact, there's, a, there's ruins from, from around that time there. Uh, and so, you, so he pursued them all the way to Dan. And then we're told in verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Haba, which is north of Damascus. So that's way north, way into Syria. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of this guy and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, here we go, brought out bread and wine. It's interesting. It's kind of like the symbols of uh, elements of communion. And he was the priest of God most high. Now remember, this is before the giving of the law, way before Moses. So you ask the question, well, how could he be a priest? There was no priesthood yet. God hadn't started that. I mean, we have no idea what God was doing in the lives of people. And, and obviously there was a person that represented him, represented him to the people and, the, and the, represented the people to God there. And so that's what he was. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Bless, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand and gave him a tithe of all. Now, I'll turn back to Hebrews 7. That gives us a reference point 
And now we'll understand what the author of the book of Hebrews is referring to when he gets into our verses. And let's begin reading in verse 1 of, of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Now, the first thing we notice in verse 1 is this man's offices. He had two offices, and that's noteworthy because you weren't an, an Aaronic priest. Those that were Levites, they could not hold the position of king. They were set apart as priests. And I'm sure that David, he, he, he functioned as a prophet. He was a king, but I'm sure that David really wanted to be a priest because he was a worshiper. And there were other instances where, and we've looked at it a little bit as we've gone through this book, but there were times where priests took that, or kings rather, took that upon themselves, and because of that, God disciplined them. So you could not be both offices. And this is interesting because here he could be. He could be part, or he could hold both offices, and that, that was very, very unique. The second thing we see in verse 2 is the meaning of his names. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and then he was, he was a king of Salem, and Salem is, is derived from the word shalom. It's the word peace in, in Hebrew. So he was the king of peace there. And that's interesting because Jesus is, of course, those things and more. Jesus is the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. A king is someone that has, is a monarchy who has control over something. Jesus has control over righteousness, and Jesus has control over peace. And what I like here is that it's revealed in a very specific order that this name meant right, king of righteousness, and then after that, his name is referred to as meaning king of Salem, which is king of peace. And that's because I believe that righteousness, God's righteousness, given over to us, imputed to our account, gives us the capacity to have peace with God. We're told that explicitly in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where we're told this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification means that you're acquitted. You're acquitted of something. And for us, spiritually, we're acquitted when we have Jesus' righteousness put to our account. Then we have peace. You can't have peace with God when, he, when you're his enemy, in that sense, that we're at enmity with God. You can't have peace with God when you have that sin problem in between you and him. But once you have that positional standing with him where he's taken that righteousness and put it to your account positionally, when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, I can have peace with him and enjoy that relationship that he, that he intended me to enjoy. So many people out there are trying to get the peace of God without first experiencing God's righteousness to their account, and they could never have it. So it's, it's interesting to me that it's listed in that order. Now notice also in verse 3, we're given further description of Melchizedek. It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, historically, there was a, a, all kinds of opinions about who this Melchizedek guy was. All the, through the history of God's people, people had different opinions. You know, they, they say, uh, two Jews, three opinions. You know, and, and so they even say that about themselves. They're very opinionated. I remember going to Israel and being on the bus, the tour bus, and, and the driver, the bus driver, knows the tour guide, and they're sitting close, and, 
and over time, I'm just thinking, you know, they're getting mad. They're, they're going to start fighting or something. They're just yelling at each other and everything. And I asked them, is everything okay? And yeah, we're just talking about things. You know, they're just having a general conversation. They get so passionate. They get so, uh, you know, bold and blunt about what they believe and so forth. And so it wasn't any exception related to who Melchizedek was. So some of them believe that, that Melchizedek was... Uh, you know, Michael the Archangel, you know, the Essenes, that was the group, of, they, were, they were a separate group from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they, and, and they, they believed that, that he was Michael the Archangel. And then a lot of the Jews during that time didn't believe that, though, but they believed that he was Shem, Noah's oldest son, because Noah's oldest son would have been alive when Abraham was around. And so they, they had that view. A lot of people today believe that, that this is a Christophany or an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And, and I don't personally share that view, and I'll share why. And, and the reason is because in the verses here, he uses verbiage that describes that there were similarities, but not really the same person. If you look at the end of verse 2, um, or 3 rather, we're told that he was made like the Son of God. And then in verse 15, we're told that that Melchizedek was, 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 had the likeness that was similar, but not the same. And so I don't, and there's other reasons why, but uh, the point is, is that we, it's a mystery. We don't know exactly who he was, if he was anyone other than just a, a, a godly man that God set apart, who made it both a king and a priest for that time, way before the, the law of Moses was given and the priesthood was established. And and, and so I don't have to know exactly if he has some greater significance. The point is, and I think this is really what he was for sure, if, you know, at least he was this, that he was a type. He was a type of Christ there. And, and so we're told that we don't have, you know, a succession to his order of priests. And that's noteworthy. We're not told that there was anyone beyond Melchizedek that was ever in the order of Melchizedek. It was just him. He's the only one listed. And that makes sense because Jesus is unique. So if he was going to be a type of Christ, it would make sense that there would just be one. He would be very unique and there would just be one of them, one of you know him being one, so that it would point to Jesus because he is God's one and only son. When we say the words, you know, only begotten son, in the Greek, that means one and only. And some translations uh, translate it that, that way. W one and only unique son. And, and so that would make sense. So I believe he was the type there of Christ. And again, he was made like the son of God. It wasn't the other way around. Jesus wasn't made like him. It says in the verse that he was made like the son of God. And he was made to point people to another high priest, one whose priesthood would never, ever end. And that's the Lord Jesus's priesthood. Because notice at the end of verse 3, it says continually there. He would be a priest continually. And that's what he's trying to get out. This writer is going to give some credible reasons why the Melchizedek priesthood that, that Jesus is in the order of is superior to the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. But one of those reasons is that his priesthood never ends. And so we'll see that as we progress. But the first reason is that he, it's superior. Melchizedek's ministry or priesthood is that Abraham paid tithes to him. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, Now consider how great this man was. So we're told in Scripture Melchizedek was great. To whom even the patriarch, Abraham, gave a tenth 
of the spoils. Now, if you talk to a Jew today and you say, who's greater than Abraham? It's hard for them to come up with anyone else. I mean, he was the first one. He was the one that God called uh, to, to start that, you know, that nation and the whole lineage. And so how could anyone be greater? But here he says that he is greater. And indeed, verse 5, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. And the premise is this, the, the greater receives tithes from the lesser or the inferior. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. And, and what the writer's getting across is that was an acknowledgement by Abraham, a very distinct, purposeful acknowledgement that this man was greater than him because you only pay tithes to somebody that's greater. And so, and the whole vibe is, or the whole thrust of this is, Abraham was okay with it, and you need to be okay with this priesthood being greater than the Aaronic priesthood. That's what the writer's getting across. Abraham was fine with this. He wasn't insecure about it. He wasn't uh, threatened by him. He submitted to that, and he recognized this man is greater. Probably didn't understand everything about who he was, or how did he, he got to be in that place. It didn't matter. He recognized he was greater. There's something that happened between him and, and God that showed him, you you're, need to respect this person. You need to pay tithes to them and, sh- and, and so forth. And that's what he does. Also, the sons of Levi, Levi were commanded by God in the law to receive tithes from the people. And this was an acknowledgement that they were greater than the people. So there's, it's not talking about being better. You know, sometimes we especially the cults, and they look at Jesus saying, the Father is greater than I. They stumble, and they say, see, Jesus is less than God. He didn't say that the Father is better than I, like he's higher in nature. He says he's greater. Just because we have position doesn't mean that we're inherently or ontologically greater than or better than somebody else. A president of the United States is greater than us by his position, but he's not any better. He's still a human being and so forth. So that's kind of the idea here. Uh, um, the Levites were supposed to, and they were commanded by God to receive these tithes from God. And that, that was an acknowledgment that, that they were, had a greater role among the people. And, and so that's what he's getting at here. And even though these other Jews were from the loins of Abraham, they still had to do it because of their lower position. So that's what he's saying in the verse, that later on down the road, way after Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, you had the Aaronic uh, priests there, the Levites there, serving the people. They were receiving tithes from the people, but the people, even though that they were descendants of Abraham too, they still had to pay these tithes to the Levites as commanded by the law because the very uh, arrangement of everything was that they were lower in position than the Levites. That's what he's saying there in, in verse 5. Verse 6, but he, that is Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not derived from them, that is, the sons of Levi and the loins of Abraham, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Melchizedek was not, he was not a Levite. He didn't have, he didn't possess any Levite genes. You know, he was, he did not come from that, that was a bad one, I know, it's just, you're used to it, you know. But I, when, when can you say that? I mean, you can almost teach the whole Bible, never get to say a lame joke like that. So he didn't have any, he didn't have any Levi genes, um, but he, he still received tithes there. And, and, he, and so here, this, this genealogy, he didn't get it from the Levites, but he still received tithes. And so when it talks about the sons of Levi and the loins of Abraham, that's kind of weird. We don't 
really talk about that, but God's recognizing that, you know, that that whole line started way before they actually were born. It started in God's mind way before that. And so, in a sense, they, the Levites paid tithes, too, to Melchizedek because they were still in the loins of Abraham. And so, that's how God sees it. So, that's what he's getting at. Now, he gives the second reason why Melchizedek's order is superior to the sons of Levi at the end of verse 6. It says, the greater always blesses the lesser because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Remember, a lot of times in the Old Testament, I think of uh, Jacob. And at the end of his life, he has his 12 sons around him, and he pronounces blessing and so forth. That was a great tradition. I think it's a great tradition even today to have the older people uh, take the younger people around them and bless them, especially at the end of their lives. I think it's great. It's wonderful. And we can't underestimate the power of it, uh, power of it and how God honors that. But no, no five-year-old says, Grandpa, Please come up here and I'm going to bless you. You know, it just doesn't happen. The greater always blesses the lesser. And so the whole point is that happened. Abraham didn't have a problem with that. He didn't argue with it. He submitted to it. And so that demonstrates that's a second reason. Not only did Abraham pay tithes, but also he was blessed by Melchizedek. So that shows that Melchizedek was greater. Verse 7. Now beyond all contradiction... The lesser is blessed by the better. There's our word better, as we've seen through the book. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Levi. Through that son, the priesthood would be established. And so here he's saying, even before Levi was born, even generations before he was born, in a sense, Levi and the priests paid tithes uh, through Abraham to Melchizedek. And so that demonstrates that Melchizedek's line is superior. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? In other words, if the law was sufficient and that priesthood was sufficient, that's all that mankind ever needed, why did God promise to David and, and express that to David uh, in uh, Psalm 110 that there would be another priesthood. So that's, his, that's what he's getting at. If the Aaronic priesthood was sufficient, he wouldn't have promised another one. That's, that's the point. And David received that psalm, Psalm 110, which every Jew knew that that was messianic through and through. There's not one part of Psalm 110 that's not messianic. It's a good psalm to memorize. And that's where he says, and he promises through, I will, you know, he's talking about, uh, I will, give you another priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that was given to David 400 years after the law was given and 400 years after the priesthood was set up. And so it, 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 it's, uh, you know, after the giving of the law and after all of that. And this writer is saying, why would it be needed? If, if everything about the Levitical priesthood and the law was, was all that mankind ever needed, why did he promise? And, and that's a good question that they would have to answer. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken 
belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. In other words, no high priest in the order of Melchizedek or from that order ever received worship or received an offering or was ever officiating at the tabernacle or the temple. That's never happened. We've had a priest over a whole different order, not of, not of Aaron or the Levites, but of the order of Melchizedek. That, that had never happened. That's what he's uh, referring to. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And that's really the issue, because I mentioned this before, but these Hebrews would definitely know that the high priest had to come through, all the priests had to come through the tribe of Levi there. And that the Lord Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Completely different son. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Levi. The other one was Judah. And so that was the wrong line. And they knew that. And, and, but God knew the whole time that the, the, the high priest that was going to have a, uh, an enduring or unchangeable priesthood would be from a totally different um, line of priests. So this writer is anticipating that objection. And so he even says it here. He's not from, our, our Lord's not from uh, that, that tribe. Verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, he quotes Psalm uh, 110 again. So this endless life that we see, that's the key to everything. That's why Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened to him. He's just appeared. He was very, very unique. And that was a type of the Lord Jesus having a ministry that never ends because he would never die. And he would, after he rose from the dead, obviously, that ministry would continue even to this day. And so he, he says there, uh, even in the Old Testament, I said that in Psalm 110. Because notice the word forever there. <laughs> you are a priest forever. Which priest in the Aaronic priesthood could have a priesthood that lasted forever? And later on, he's going to get into how, how that's impossible. They would all die. All these priests would die. None of them could be a priest forever, but Jesus is a priest forever. And, you know, and again, I want to remind you that at this time, the priesthood's going full steam ahead. There'd been 15 high priests since that veil was rent on, the, on, on a Good Friday. And all those were illegitimate high priests. All the priests were illegitimate from that time on. And so it was still going, but three and four years from this point, that whole temple was going to be destroyed by the Romans, and they have no idea that that's coming. So that's, we have to keep that in mind. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because it's weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Some people believe that this, this verse 19 is one of the reasons why this book is anonymously written, especially if it was written by Paul. Because no, one, no Jew would want to be accused of being misunderstood about the, the purpose of the law. Because he says, the law, for the law made nothing perfect. And that was a big deal to, to Jews. Because they were trying to be justified or acquitted by the works of the law. That Paul would elaborate on and say, no, no flesh shall be justified in his sight by the works of the law. But he says, the annulling of the former commandment. And I believe that's talking about the commandment of the priests, the whole sacrificial system that passed away as far as God's concerned. Because the purpose of the law of Moses still stands today. 
It's to convict the world of sin. It's to show people that they need a Savior. That was the purpose all along. And people still need to be saved today. The Holy Spirit is still testifying to this world saying, you need to choose Jesus because you can't save yourself. You can't ever be good enough. So the law, all 613 of those laws are screaming at us, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. That still happens today. But in terms of the commandment for the priesthood to continue, that's been annulled. And, and that doesn't continue. And that had weakness to it. And it wasn't profitable in the sense of taking away sin once and for all. Because in the Old Testament, the word atonement means to cover. And it would just roll those sins ahead one year at a time. Until eventually Jesus took those sins on the cross. But in the New Testament, the word means to take away. So our sins are taken away completely from us. There were limitations to the priesthood that do not occur related to Jesus being our high priest. And that's why God had something better in mind all along. And he let everybody know that in Psalm 110, 400 years after the law was given. So these Jewish believers should know better than to say he can't be the high priest because he's from the, law, the wrong line of, of, of people. He's not from the line of, of Levi. So He's saying, you have a better high priest. And that's what he's been getting at all along. Verse 20. And insomuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he says in verses 18 and 19, I forgot to mention, that when he says, a better hope. That's not by accident. Again, that's that repeating word, better, 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 better. The law made nothing perfect in the sense of he can't make us perfect before God. All it does is show our guilt. But God's solution, the new covenant that he's going to talk about being a better covenant, that actually does provide righteousness for us. And that does make us perfect in the sense of being flawless before God positionally as his righteousness is put to our account. And so he does bring a better hope. And through that, we can draw near to God. We could never draw near to God before under the law. You could never do it. All it did was convict you and show you your guilt and, and you had no savior. And so there were limitations. It never took care of your sin problem to the extent that the new covenant does under the, the new high priest. And so he, he is focusing on that as well. Now, verses 20 and 21, the writer speaks of an oath. And what he's talking about is when the Levitical priests became priests, God did not pronounce an oath to them and swear uh, in, in, you know, in saying what their purpose was like he did in Psalm 110 related to the, 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 uh, the future high priest Jesus uh, you know, following in the order of Melchizedek that would have a never-ending priesthood. And that's why it's better. So when he says that uh, he did it without an oath in verse 20, it's, that's what he's saying. He didn't pronounce that oath like he did uh, with the Lord Jesus uh, in Psalm 110. And then he adds, verse 22, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And that's important for us to see. There's our word better again in verse 22. We, we are engaged in a better covenant. So often when we hear people talk about what's binding upon believers, you have to be very careful about what they're talking about. There's things in the Old Testament that are not relevant for us. It, they were said to, to people that were under a different covenant, the Old Covenant, and it's not rele relevant for us today. So there's a lot of things that don't carry over. There's many things that do carry over, 
but they carry over because they're part of the law of Christ, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. That takes care of most of those things. So we have to be very careful. Whatever someone trying to have us believe about our faith and practice, is that related to the old covenant or is that related to the new covenant? And the new covenant is a better covenant. It has better promises. We have a better, better inheritance as a result of it. And so it's very important for us to see that. I reference that all the time, that we're part of a better covenant. And that's where I get that in verse, uh, the end of verse 22. Then he continues in verse 23. Also, there are many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. There's another reason why Melchizedek's order is a better one. It's unchangeable. As verse 23 tells us, these Levites, they could not continue in their, in their, um, in their ministry. These high priests could serve till they died. And these cities of refuge that a person could run to if they killed someone accidentally, they could run to those cities of refuge and they could be there safe until the high priest died. And then when there was a new high priest, then they could be uh, back into the, the community there. But they had limitations. They died. There were changing high priests, you know, as, as often as the high priest would, would pass away. But here Jesus has a superior priesthood because he's not prevented by anything related to death. He, he lives forevermore. And so he's saying he continues forever with an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, what is this save to the uttermost? And some people say, well, he just thoroughly saves you. When you come to know him, he just saves you all the way through. And, and you know, uh, he who the sun sets free will be free indeed and so forth and all of that. Now, that's all true. But I don't believe that he's talking about being saved to the uttermost related to the moment of salvation when he, when he does that. I believe he's still talking about salvation in the sense of being delivered to heaven someday and receiving our, our resurrected bodies or our glorified bodies. Because... That's what he's getting at through this whole book, to endure, to endure, to hold fast your confession to the end, and that salvation will come in in that sense of being delivered to heaven at the end of our lives. And the reason why I believe that is because he says, look at the word since there in verse 25. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. His ministry of intercessor, his, his intercessory ministry, however you want to say it, the ministry of intercession, there we go, uh, that, continue, that really takes place, you know, in, in, in the sense of how we understand it. When we come to know Christ, then we realize that he's, he's praying for us. Not, not that he doesn't pray for us before we come to know him or whatever, but the whole thrust of it is his ministry of intercession has to do with interceding for saints there. And so when he says he's able to save to the to the uttermost, he's talking about preserving, us being preserved, us being uh, helped all the way through this life and this pilgrimage until one day we get our new bodies and we're with him physically. We can have that happen and be saved all the way through all of that because of his intercession for us, because he's interceding for us. And I think, I just love verse 25 because I forget that he's interceding for me. You ever have that happen? I can go for weeks and forget that he's interceding for me and he's praying for me. 
And, and I say that to my shame, you know, I mean, I should be remembering that a lot more, but I forget that he's up there. And we think sometimes in our lives that we go through difficulty and some of us are going through some things versus others that are more unique or have a different flavor to them, but we can feel like we're all alone. We can feel like nobody's watching out for us. We can feel like we're, we're all by ourselves. Nobody is uh, watching over us. Nobody is praying for us and all that. And we always have at least one person, our, our great, wonderful high priest, whose ministry is unchangeable, who's always there praying and interceding for us. People say, well, how, how could he possibly do that? There's millions and millions of Christians, billions probably, of, of Christians in the world. How could he possibly be praying for everybody individually all at once? He's God. So easy for him. That's not, we're talking about someone that's infinite. He has no limitations on him whatsoever. And he places this in his word a few different times to encourage his people. And we want the full effect of his encouragement to be realized in each one of our lives, don't we? Don't we? we want that. So that means that we need to reference that at times, and we need to uh, thank him for that and, and take comfort in that when we're weak and when we're feeling alone, when we feel like no one understands. He understands everything. He's already told us that he is not like any other person, any other high priest, because he's already been tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. And he's gone through all these things that we've gone through, and he understands experientially what we go through, and that's a huge encouragement. But he doesn't, he isn't the only one that makes intercession. We're told also that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us, helps in our weakness, weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And that's what we want at times. We, oh, I want God's will. I want to know God's will. And it's so comforting to know that the Holy Spirit himself, inside of us, intercedes for us. And he's, when he says that no one knows the mind of the Spirit, uh, or, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, that is saying that the deepest part of who he is inside of us knows our needs intimately and makes those requests to God on our behalf. And there's sometimes, and I used to believe this is a reference uh, uh, for the gift of tongues, but I, I've changed since then because not everyone has that gift. And we're told in Scripture that not everyone can have that gift. And that would mean that the Spirit would be able to intercede for people in ways that the rest of the body could not enjoy. And he doesn't say tongues. He could have said tongues a million times over. He says with, with groanings, which words which cannot be uttered. And there's times where you just don't know what to pray for. You have no words to say. And the Spirit inside of you groans and intercedes for you. And that can sound <laughs> differently for everyone, I guess. But the point is, is that he intercedes for us. He's backing us up. He's, he's, he has us in his mind and in his heart. And he's expressing these things on our behalf. And that's supposed to bring incredible comfort to us. What a great high priest he is. To be able to intercede for us and to be comforted knowing that, I mean, he doesn't just, he doesn't waste words. How, how many of us remember the Lord Jesus in the Gospels saying one extra word? That's a little bit different than me. Big contrast there. He doesn't say one syllable too, you know, less than he should. He doesn't say one syllable too much. He doesn't waste his words. He prayed for Peter. 
that his faith would, would not fail. And God answered that prayer. He said, Satan has asked you by name, asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you return, encourage your brethren. So Jesus' prayers get answered. He knows what to pray for. And, and so that should be a great encouragement. Maybe you're here today and you just need to know freshly today that, that Jesus is interceding for you. You may feel like no one else knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on. And he's praying for you. And that is a huge comfort for us. He intends it to be a massive encouraging uh, word to us. And I hope that rings true in all of our hearts. And lastly, he speaks of Jesus being perfect for us in verses 26 through 28. He says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, that's what we talked about in Psalm 110, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now look in verse 26 when he says it was a high priest was fitting for us. Isn't that a beautiful way to say it? He's everything that we need. He's everything and more than we need. Who is holy. Jesus is holy for sure. And that's why he wants us to be holy. He says, be holy for I am holy. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So he's entirely separate. And he's, and he's holy and pure and, and everything that represents those things and more. Also harmless. And that's interesting because... <laughs> People think that Jesus is not harmless. They think that he will harm them if they get near him and somehow he's going to hurt them. He just, I haven't come to, to uh, condemn the world, but through, but through the, my sacrifice to, to bring the world to myself. So he's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners and not in the sense of not wanting to engage sinners. We're told in scripture he's the friend of sinners, but he's separate from sinners in the sense of his holiness and his purity. He's not like all those other high priests from the Levitical line needing to have sacrifices made on their own behalf. He didn't have to, before he went to the cross, do a sacrifice for his sins first. He said many times in his ministry, he, or who among you convicts me of sin? There was silence then and there's silence today. It's a perfect life, perfectly holy. And he's become higher than the heavens. Remember when we first talked about Jesus being our high priest, we saw in, in Hebrews, I think it was chapter 4, where he said, our high priest who has passed through the heavens. And the imagery was going through the, up to the, the holy of holies. You know, the, the high priest on this earth had to go through the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, the court of the men, the holy place, and then the most holy place, passed through all those levels of access till he got to the holy of holies. And our high priest went through from this world and his public ministry all the way up through, passed through the heavens into the very essence of what that Holy of Holies was modeled after. And he brings us there to say, come boldly and express your need to me in the throne room of grace. So he's entirely different. And he says in verse 28 that the law appoints these high priests who have weakness, but the word of the oath, that which he promised to David in Psalm 110, came after the law, 400 years after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And that was supposed to be a huge, huge encouragement to them. And it's supposed to be for us today. 
because he's interceding for us. He's beckoning us to come boldly by prayer into that throne room and, and not feel like we have to get everything right and order, you know, orderly and perfect in our lives spiritually before we come. That would be a throne room of, of legalism or works. That's not the throne. The throne is a throne of grace. And so we have to come as dirty, filthy as we are. Just come before him and then let him clean us up. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord. He wants to clean your life up. He wants to make you into a new creation. But you can't try to get perfect before he'll make you how he wants to make you. He, you have to come to uh, the, the place where you get clean first. Like it's been said, you can't clean a fish before you catch it. He has to have you first. And then he cleans up your life. And he makes your life into a beautiful testimony of his grace. So lots of encouragement here. We're just getting started. We have three more chapters to go in all of this. And I know the Lord will bless that. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the preeminence of your word in our lives. And we are so grateful, Lord, that, that the Lord Jesus is our beautiful high priest who doesn't have a changing ministry as high priest, Lord. Thank you that he's constant and constantly faithful and unchanging. We're so grateful, Lord, that he's interceding for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're praying for us. We thank you for that. We have no idea how all that works with you, but we know you're God and we, we trust you and we thank you. Help us, Lord, to be like you in interceding for those around us, to continue or to partner with you in, in intercession as we pray for people, knowing that you're praying for the same people we're praying for. Lord, encourage us to be people of prayer. Help us to grow in our prayer lives. Thank you so much that you beckon us and call us to that life of dependence upon you. We want to be good stewards of that life. So thank you for these verses. Thank you for the wealth that's found in them. Use them for your purposes in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.